Jesus says that the Jews won't be given any sign but the sign of Jonah. And he gives this warning. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. There's something to be said about this, of course. It's from our, from our Savior's mouth. But it's uh, a warning in some ways against uh, this kind of carnal desire of signs to verify uh, uh, the works of God. And we see this in more kind of exuberant, charismatic expressions where there is an obsession with signs and wonders at the expense of the Word of God. And this priority, Jesus is saying, uh, is, is wrong. A wicked generation seeks after a sign. You're not going to get one except the sign of uh, Jonah, which is what? What is that sign? That's right, he was in the fish for how many days? And how many nights? Uh, three days. And then what happened after that? He got spit out, which is a typological representation of Christ rising from the dead. So they will be given the sign of the resurrection. And this, I don't think, it actually exhausts what the sign is. The sign is really the prophet of Jonah and what Jonah is about. And, and I want to go through this, but I will say up front, Jonah is exhibiting all throughout Scripture, we've talked about this in Genesis, the sin of the older brother. The older brother has this murderous, envious uh, spirit against his younger brother, who is the chosen one or who is favored by God. And we have a similar thing here with Jonah. And Jesus is saying, you Jews are acting like the older brother. You are acting like Jonah. Jonah at the end of the book is pouting and he's upset and he fleed God because uh, he knew that God was going to have mercy on the Ninevites. He says this explicitly. We're told we don't have to make conjectures. We don't have to guess. Jonah fled uh, because of this reason. And the Jews were similarly stingy. They didn't want God uh, they didn't want God to go to the nations. They didn't want this favor of God on others. In some ways, we can think of it as a kind of scorned lover complex. His love is mine. It is only mine. And I don't want it to be shared with anybody else. Uh, we see this a lot. Oftentimes, there's several illustrations, I think, that kind of uh, uh, show us this um, uh, jealous love or this unhealthy kind of thing in uh, in the book the case for christ or in the movie the case for christ by lee strobel you see um his wife becomes a christian they're atheists and uh she starts reading her bible and praying and he gets angry he's jealous that her love is being uh not only his and so he's kind of the jews in that situation um, that it's being uh, that that God's favor is being on her as well. We see this until we have faces from C.S. Lewis as well, which I, is a fantastic book. I'd say it's it's C.S. Lewis's best um, fiction work. Where uh, Oriel is uh, the older sister, uh, stepsister of Psyche, and Psyche finds a husband, and she's angry. She she's angry that Psyche isn't her sole love anymore. Uh, she she becomes this wife of a of a god king type thing. Um, we see this even in Milton's Paradise Lost. He, he portrays Satan this way as this scorned lover that God bestows his love on humans. And this is uh, 
this, this is something that we see all throughout Scripture with Cain. Uh, Cain was envious of his brother and he killed his brother. He killed Abel because God w was favorable on him. And I think that is what Jonah is um, doing here. Often, or that's what I think Jesus, by pointing to Jonah, is saying. Yes, this, is, this points to the resurrection. But it point, it, he's saying the problem of Jonah was this older brother syndrome. And he's saying, you Jews are, have the same problem. And you need, to, you need to resolve this. You need to be exuberant and glad that God wants to bring his covenant to the nations. And that's, that is what, there, there's this rebuke going on here. Uh, oftentimes, there's a lot of debate over um, the three days and three nights that occur uh, uh, from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, um, because we take it in meaning uh, three full 24-hour periods. And essentially, there's a lot of, you can go down huge rabbit holes on this, but um, essentially, as long as it touches these th this three-day uh, period, this is kind of an idiom that, that signifies this uh, three days and three nights period, even though it's not necessarily a literal kind of thing. Um, I often think of it like the point of it, so people get in these squabbles. It wasn't technically three days and three nights, but it, it's, it's like a, it's a sign pointing to the resurrection. Somebody came back from the dead. That's, that's what Jesus is pointing to. Um, I think about C.S. Lewis talking about signs that God gives us and how people have a certain, some people, and he's making fun of like rationalists and, and, and kind of the scientific materialism are like dogs where you point some, you point, so you say, say to a dog, go over there, go over there. And then the dog starts licking your finger. Like it doesn't understand that the finger means go that way. They just start licking the finger. And that's a kind of way of people getting sucked into this three days and uh, three nights thing. Also, uh, there's a point uh, in, in the scriptures in John 7 where they're debating who Jesus is. Is he the Christ? Is he a prophet? What is he? And uh, somebody says, uh, he comes from Galilee and no prophet has come from Galilee. And uh, Jonah actually comes from Galilee. If we read in 2 Kings 14, we're told that he comes from a place called Gath Hefer. And in uh, Joshua, we're told that Gath Hefer is uh, given in the territory of Zebulun. And Zebulun encompasses the territory of Galilee. And so um, that's, uh, it's kind of this funny, John has all of these things making fun of the Jews and how much they, they were missing all, all of the signs. You know, you see this in, in, in actually Nicodemus is in that, in that conversation. Um, and, and they actually accuse him because you see Nicodemus kind of, trying to defend what's going on. And they say, what are you from Galilee? Like, are you, nothing's come out of Galilee. There's no prophets from Galilee. That's in John 7. Um, but even, even in the interactions with, with uh, Nicodemus, right? He, what does Jesus say? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know that you have to be born again, right? So John has this kind of making fun of, the, of how blind the people of God had become. Okay. There's also these correspondences between who Jonah is and who Jesus is. Uh, there's, quite, there's quite a few, um, but I, I want to walk through them, and uh, we'll, we'll do it quickly. But um, 
Jonah is told to go uh, to Nineveh. He's a prophet uh, to the Gentiles, like Christ. Christ brings in a new covenant, which incorporates the Gentiles. And Nineveh really could be kind of a signifier of, of uh, the Gentiles. I mean, we have Nineveh all the way in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Um, does anybody know who builds Nineveh? He's, 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 he actually falls within this older brother motif. It's Nimrod. Nimrod's a great hunter. Esau is a great hunter. Cain slays his brother. Uh, so uh, Nimrod likely uh, for, uh, builds um, Nineveh. And then uh, Nineveh is inhabited by Assyrians who likely come from Asher, who's actually a descendant of uh, uh, Shem. And it's likely, this is speculation, but that Nimrod, uh, the son of Ham, subjugates Asher. And he's kind of raging against the, the curses that were pronounced uh, over him that the, the, he would serve, he would, he would live in the tents of his brother. Okay, so there's similarities, but there's also differences. Um, he's called to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh is, um, it's in modern-day Iraq. It's northern Iraq. It's what's, uh, it's called Mosul now. So you, we, we had, when we invaded Iraq in 2003, there were, there were a lot of battles that took place in Mosul. And um, so that's Nineveh. So it's in Iraq, he's in Israel, and he goes to Tarshish, which is in Spain. It's in the exact opposite direction. It's on the other side of the world. Uh, and so that's, so he starts going. Uh, there's also this, um, this repetition of Jonah going down. He went down to Tarshish, he went down to the docks, he goes down into the boat. Um, so we see this descent as he's disobeying the word of God. God says, go this way. He starts dying. <laughs> and when he, uh, when he arrives at the port, it says that he, he purchases this, uh, he, he per it's translated a lot of different ways. He purchases a ticket, he purchases the ship uh, so that he can leave. Now, what likely happens is that these cargo ships, they, they remain on port and they stay on port until enough people buy passenger tickets, and then once that fills up, then they, then they leave and go. What Jonah likely did is he purchased all of those tickets so that he could leave. He purchased the ship, the way that it's phrased. It appears that he purchased that entire uh, cargo passenger uh, uh, load. It would, be like, it would be like, I gotta get out of here, and it would be like if planes waited for people to come, and it's like, I'm just gonna purchase every single seat on this flight so we can get out of here right now. Um, that's, that's kind of what he, what he did a little bit. Okay, so they go, the, the, the seas are tumultuous. God is angry. God is uh, uh, responding to Jonah's disobedience. And um, God, when he initially comes to Jonah, he says, arise and go. And the captain of the ship, if we start thinking typologically, he, he, he says to Jonah, arise and call on your God. It's kind of this... Uh, he, he's saying he's it's kind of like God following him in the person of the, the captain of this ship. Now, now, what do the what do the seas uh, represent? We've talked about this before. Uh, what's one thing that the seas represent often in in scripture? The what? The nations, the nations exactly. The nations. And um, Jonah is. Uh, they determine to throw him into the nations. The word is hurl. It comes up quite a bit. They hurl him 
into the sea. Now, is there anything in the New Testament that is hurled into the sea, that is thrown into the sea? Anybody know? The pigs. The what? The pigs. Yeah, that's a good one. That's. They hurl themselves in there. Mary? Was Satan hurled from heaven? Uh, he fell from heaven. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking. Are you talking about throwing to a sea of fire? Mm -mm. No. Okay. no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Matt, isn't there a big comet in Revelation that is hurled? A big, uh, uh. Fiery mountain. They're, they're. Hurled into the ocean? Yes, that. That is what I'm looking for. Oh. That's what I'm, that, that's good. Um, I don't know if it's in Revelation. Uh, it, it, it might be. Um, but what I'm thinking of is Jesus. He gives a symbolic commission to his apostles by saying, if you have faith, you can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, hurl yourself into the sea. The mountain represents Mount Zion, who is Christ. And the sea is the nations. It is bringing Christ into the nations. That's what's... That's what's going on. Right. Yeah. If they, have the, if they have this faith, they can do this. That's, and so there's a similar thing going on here. Jonah is thrown into the sea, this tumultuous place. And what happens? It's calmed. Jesus brings peace to the Gentiles. Jesus brings peace to the world. He calms the seas. And this theme of calming the seas is everywhere. We see it with, we see it often with Jesus, who often, I think, is, there's an allusion to Jonah. He's sleeping in the boat, too, when the, when, the, when the storms are going on. And they have to wake him up. And he's like, what are you, what are you guys afraid of? Um, and then there's also similar things with Paul. Paul experiences... Um, uh, tumultuous seas with Gentiles, and he actually likely has a kind of Eucharistic meal with them on there. And so, and it's, but he's a faithful prophet in that we see kind of, we see that we see the prophets redeemed in Paul uh, as he's on these ships uh, in these tumultuous uh, seas. Furthermore, we're told that uh, this, um, I, I, I picked up on this, I'd mentioned working my way slowly through Exodus and translating it. It was the same thing with Jonah. I had to translate Jonah and uh, the word for um, when he says, he says, lift me up and hurl me into the sea. And that word lift up stuck out to me because I had been I had been translating Exodus. And in Exodus, uh, you have um, actually, I'm not sure if it's in Exodus, but you have the serpent lifted up in the desert, which the, the, the serpent that they looked at that saved everybody. And what is that? What is the serpent typologically pointing to? Yes, the cross, right. It's the serpent being killed on the cross. And so Jonah is being lifted up. And Jesus even says this. He says, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. And I think that the, in, in the person of Jonah, this has happened. He is being lifted up and thrown into the sea, saving uh, the Gentiles. Okay, very good. The death of Jonah calms the sea. Christ himself calms the stormy Gentiles. Why do the nations rage, right? Mount Zion is thrown. Uh, the greater Jonah is thrown into the raging nations, and he calms them. He brings peace to them. These are all symbolic kind of anticipations of, of Christ and the new covenant. Also, uh, if we look at... Uh, 
We look at the men of the ship, they repent. Uh, and they, there's this conflation of Jonah as being a guilty man and an innocent man, which of course is what we have on the cross as well. He is innocent, but he is condemned as a criminal. And Jonah is the same way. He is guilty. He is running from God. And the sailors, they say this, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are, the, the Gentiles are so quick to, to come to God, and Jonah is being so stubborn. And, and this is uh, what we see all throughout um, the, the, the story of Jonah. We also stubborn see... That instead of turning the boat around and go do what he did, he has to be thrown off the hill. That's a really good point. He, he actually would rather die than, than go to Nineveh and do what God told him to do. And we see this at the end of Jonah. It, God's like, why are you angry? Are you angry? Why are you? He goes, I'm angry unto death, right? Like he's, he's upset about it. He has this, exactly. He would rather die than see God's compassion put on these Gentiles. So that's a really good point. I think we see that in him being thrown uh, into, the, uh, into the sea. And then, so, so it says, so they uh, picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. The, the sailors are repenting, right? And then going back to the stubbornness of Jonah and the, uh, the quickness to obey, or the quickness to repent among the Gentiles, you look at the story of Jonah, and you see that everything is obeying God except Jonah. God sends a wind on the sea to make it tumultuous, and the wind obeys. We see that God, uh, 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 we see the Gentiles obeying when they're presented with repentance. We see that God commands a plant to grow up, and the plant obeys and grows up. Uh, he commands a fish to swallow Jonah, and it obeys. He commands a worm to eat the plant, and it obeys. Everything from nature to the Gentiles are obeying God except Jonah. Um, and th this, it's this exaggerated uh, rebuke of Jonah and also uh, the Jews at the time. Uh, Robert, did you have something? Well, the people of the city he went to. <laughs> yeah, Nineveh, right. Which in Nineveh, when they repent, it's, the king calls for a fast and a repentance, and that they put sackcloth and ashes on them. But it's not only them, the livestock do it too. They make the animals fast. They say the animals can't have water or eat. And they put sackcloth on cows and their dogs and their cats, and they put ash on them. Everything is repenting. And so I think also this anticipates the new covenant, which I couldn't find it because I it was just pressed for time this week. But there's new covenant language that talks about the new covenant being with all of creation. And of course, we know that the new covenant is a recreation of the world. And I think that this Ninevite repentance is anticipating that. Um, so. Colossians, he has reconciled all things in heaven and earth. Okay, yeah, that's good. That's good. I was, I had, um, can you think of an Old Testament prophet? I, I, it was something in the Old Testament that was anticipating it that jumped out. Does anything come to mind? I know what you're talking about, but I need like at least two words to go on. Yeah, I couldn't remember either. I think it's in Ezekiel, but I'm not sure. Okay, so he's thrown into the sea. This fish eats him. It, the, word, the Hebrew word there is dag. It's uh, uh, the Philistine Dagon, their, their god. But it's, it, it can be fish, but it can really just kind of mean sea monster. It's not really totally sure uh, uh, what it is. Um, 
But when he's in the belly of the fish, he gives this prayer from the, the depths of Sheol. So it's likely that Jonah actually dies in the fish, that he's not alive in the belly of the fish, and that when he's uh, spewed out of the mouth of the fish, Doug Wilson uses the term he's resuscitated because he's not resurrected in the same way that Jesus is because then Jonah went on to die later on in life. It's like Lazarus. Lazarus went on to die later on in life. Remember Peter, what's going to happen with this guy? You know, don't worry about him. You do what I told you to do, right? Um, so Jonah is uh, similar here. Also, he ends his prayer with salvation is from the Lord, which is uh, salvation is from the Lord Yeshua. Uh, it, it, which is Jesus. So we have, I think, this kind of, you know, this pointing to Jesus here with, uh, with Jonah. Now, when Jonah gets to Nineveh, the only thing we're told that he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Now, there's a couple things that are interesting about this. First, it, it might be that we see Jonah's begrudgingness in that. It's very minimal. Um, he does it. And I think God honors that. God honors this, but, but it is minimal. And you, and you can kind of see that possibly. The other thing is just setting this in our current continuationist, cessationist uh, debates. I think if Jonah lived today, he would be on Todd Friel's program, Wretched, and he would be denounced as a false prophet. Because what did he say? He said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Did that happen? No. Is Jonah a false prophet? Yeah. No, he's not. He's not a false prophet. He was sinning. You're right. You're probably thinking about that. He was disobedient, but he wasn't a false prophet. And the reason why guys like Todd Friel and Justin Peters do these kinds of things is because they give so little attention to how prophecy actually works in the Bible. If they did, they would say, oh, there are certain prophecies that are conditional. And if these people repent, that thing is not going to happen. And that's exactly what happened here. They do repent and um, God relents from destroying them. It says, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from disaster that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. <laughs> right. So there are conditional uh, warnings there are conditional prophecies. Um, and we see that here uh, with with Jonah. Also, something that I think we have in our own time, what we are hoping for, what we're seeing what God, the Spirit of God is doing is a reformation that is kind of from the ground up, right? There, there doesn't seem to be much repentance from our leaders. There doesn't seem to be much repentance from politicians. There doesn't seem to be much repentance from pastors and priests and bishops. The repentance and the sincere desire to follow God seems to be happening at your average, the, the layman level, right? But here, it's actually different. And this kind of gives me some hope. I mean, just, just that things happen in other ways. They don't happen always the same way. The king repents. He takes off his robe or his crown, however you want to. He repents. He removes it. And he calls for a fast and repentance to all the people. And they comply. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of this top down from the king to the animals here in Nineveh. Okay, so we've already talked about Jonah's displeasure at the, end, at the end here, and I think that the end of Jonah is really something that Jesus is alluding to with the sign of Jonah. Not only will the resurrection happen, the three days and three nights, 
in the heart of the earth, which that's interesting too. It says that he's in the belly of the fish. And Jesus says that he's in the heart of the land. Um, uh, I, I, I won't go down that path, but he's, um, he's pointing to the problem of the Jews. He's pointing to their stubbornness. He's pointing to their older brother problem. I mean, he does this in the, in the prodigal, the, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the Gentiles. The prodigal son are the Ninevites. And they come back to the father's house. And the older brother, huh, what about me? I've been here this whole time. Where's mine, right? And I've thought about that with us. Like, how, how is that going to affect us? And I think, I think, you, you have to kind of apply this in a way that modifies a few things. But I think God's given us a lot of insight into, into things. We are, in some ways, the tip of the spear. We are the special forces of the kingdom. And I don't think it's prideful to say that. I think them's just the facts. And I think when the, the rest of the normal army comes, and then the civilians come, after we've taken a lot of territory, and God blesses them mightily with people who would have never gone in the tip of the spear, I think we have to be careful to be like, ugh, you know? Mm -hmm. I think we have to be careful to say, I was here first, mm -hmm. you know? I think that that is something that we have to be um, careful of. We have to be fighting against being the older brother and being that begrudging, um, having that begrudging jealousy where God bestows his favor on others in ways that we think, oh, that, that was only mine. That's not yours. That's mine. So I think that that's something that we can apply to ourselves. Uh, just a quick uh, note here. Um, Nineveh is Mosul. As I said, Nineveh, they, they repent, but we do have Nahum. And Nahum, actually, one of the minor prophets, pronounces judgment against Nineveh. So Nineveh, they repented, but then later they fall back into sin, and God destroys them. And I think that this, I read that latter part there, um, that Jesus connects to this, where it says, if you clean the house and the spirit goes out and then uh, uh, it doesn't find a place to go, it comes back with seven other spirits. I think that that's what happened with Nineveh. And I think it's a little bit of a commentary on, uh, on, on the inadequacies of the Old Covenant. Um, I, and then I also think that it is a commentary. I think Jesus uses it because that's what happens with Jerusalem. There is a measure of repentance there. And he, Jesus literally is casting out demons from people. But then he comes back later and destroys them. So I think that there's some kind of uh, connection there. And then if we extend this further... Nineveh, within 300 years of Christ, they have a Christian bishop there. Mosul becomes Christian. We have them repenting once again. But fast forward another uh, 400 years after that, and I don't know what's going on, except I do know some of the flaws of Eastern Orthodoxy. One being divorce and remarriage, the other having an unhealthy relationship with icons. Um, it gets taken over by Muslims. And I would say from the Middle Ages until the invasion of Iraq by America, the Ninevites, the Assyrians there, have been essentially ruled by Muslims. I would say they've been overtaken again. And yet God has preserved the bishopric there. The Christians who established themselves there are still there. 
And I think that that is a testimony to God's faithfulness, even in our unfaithfulness. And we can hope that they will be, they will repent uh, uh, once again. All right, let's go ahead and pray. The charge is this. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You have died with Christ and have risen to new life in him. You are resurrection people. You have taken part in the first resurrection. Therefore, death and sin no longer has dominion over you, but the spirit of God does. You are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. So die to sin and live in Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.